This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. I love doing an audio trek around Missouri to chat with the Missouri Arts Council's featured artists. And this week, we are going to chat with the January artists and visit Kansas City, St. Louis, Columbia and Mountain View. So let's head out. First stop, St. Louis. A couple of months ago, St. Louis-based jazz singer Denise Times was on the show and I got to claim one degree of separation from the great Aretha Franklin, for whom Denise sang at her 72nd birthday. Well, thanks to my guest this evening, musician Vince Martin, I can now claim one degree of separation from Barry White, Gladys Knight, Ike and Tina Turner and a host of other legendary names, all of whom Vince has opened for in his long and storied career. He started playing guitar when he was 10 years old and has since traveled the world as a vocalist and guitarist, someone who can also whistle very well, someone who also customizes and builds guitars, practices Zen meditation, and apparently delivers a mean Tom Jones performance. Vince Martin, how lovely to welcome you to Speaking of the Arts. Well, thank you, Diana. It's so great to be here with you. Well, with such a well-strung bow, it's tough to know where to start in our short time together. But I'm wondering if there's one particular concert or performance or maybe a recording that you think of as a really defining moment of your career. Well, I can recall when I was 15 or so, we were uh, contracted to do a, uh, a performance to open up with a group, a previously unknown group that was touring the country. And the name of the group was Kiss. And this was before anybody had ever heard of them. And they had like these amplifiers that were like stacked up to two floors high. And they played very loud and they had all of these weird costumes. We were, we were just kids, you know, 15-year-old kids back then. I'm almost 70 now, so that's almost a lifetime ago. But yeah, we were just young kids and, and just awed by all of this. And because the amplifiers that we have that we were intending to play through, you could put under your arm. <laughs> And here they had, like, stuff stacked up to the ceiling. And they were kind enough to us kids to let us plug in and and play their gear, you know, to warm up the show. And it was the loudest I've ever played in my life, and I've never played that loud since. It was just great. And, and Gene Simmons and all of those people, they were there, and all of the different characters. It, it was just a weird, uh, you know, if you're familiar with Kiss, it was an experience. Did you know who they were? Had you heard of them before you played with them? I had heard of them because they were just beginning to come out. You know, that glam rock thing was just beginning to happen. And it was kind of a baptism of fire. Let's just say that. <laughs> and how did they know of you? Our agent, um, his name's Bob Safran, and uh, he got us the gig, you know, and that, that's how it happened. He knew some people, he pulled some strings, and he got us uh, the open for Kiss. I'm curious what kind of set you were playing. Oh, we were doing blues. We'd do blues. We'd do R&B and, you know, just uh, the standard stuff that gigging musicians do. 
Even though we were just kids, you know, we we played what was on the radio at the time, some Santana and that kind of thing. Well, I mean, music for you isn't simply a career. It's a philosophy for living. You write that it gives you the freedom to improvise and express your consciousness in many wonderful and diverse ways. Talk to me about how, for you, music is life and life is music. Well, certainly it is. I mean, you know, when you open the door in the morning, you see a sunset or a sunrise or whatever time of day it is, and you want to hear, like, uh, you can almost hear the trumpets sounding and, uh, you know, the chorus singing. When you, If you've been to the ocean or you completed a task of some sort and, and uh, you know, you were successful at something, you want to hear the ta-da, you know, and it's, we all live a... Uh, a life where we want to be revealed and appreciated, you know, and music, it accompanies us all through our lives, you know. It's, it's actually the, the, the soundtrack to our existence, you know. We may not hear it, but we feel it. And sometimes we can even express it through voice or through uh, instrumentation or uh, and through other ways, you know, uh, photography, cinematography, that kind of thing. Uh, life is just a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. It really is. And what better way to enjoy it than with the musical soundtrack of life, of your life. Take me back to that first guitar that your mum bought for you. Were you clamoring for a guitar specifically or were you just needing an instrument to play music upon? Well, you know, when I was growing up in the projects, I grew up in very uh, austere conditions and we were dirt poor. I mean, we didn't have uh, much of anything, but I really loved to sing and I'd love to hear my mom sing. My mom and I used to sing all the time and uh, my father was also quite a singer. And uh, in the church, they would sing in the choir. And that was back in those days, the church uh, services would last uh, for three or four hours. You know, so you went to Bible school and then you had the service and all of that. And you were in that church for three, four hours and, and you sang and you had lunch and all kinds of it was just a, a, an event we did this every sunday and uh, i learned a lot about music and how to sing with emotion with feeling and we did all of those this little light of mine i'm gonna let it shine whoa all of that you know we did that old time religion and uh you know i learned a lot about uh music and harmony from all of that from just being in the church that's been probably one of the biggest influences on me was my mother and father and going to church. So when I think about the church, I think about a, a piano. I think about loud piano music. What was it about the guitar that really attracted you? Well, the thing about it, I wanted to play piano initially, but we lived on the seventh floor of the <laughs> apartment building that I live in, and the elevator never worked. You had to walk up and down, seven, uh, actually two flights per floor, so it was like 14 flights of stairs, seven steps each. I remember that. So there's no way you could get a piano up there. I did know some people that had pianos, but they all lived on the first floor. And then no one above the second floor on the piano or anything of that nature. So the guitar was the proper choice. You know, it was the no-brainer choice. 
even though I wanted to play piano, I gravitated toward the guitar because of its portability. Right. As you just said, you grew up in austere conditions and your parents didn't have the money to buy you lessons. So you are self-taught. You listen to the radio and records. Tell me a little bit about the journey from being a child sitting on your sofa, just practicing for hours to suddenly being on the stage with Kiss and touring with Barry White. There must have been some incredible people in your life along the way. Well, I can think of uh, an individual by the name of David Hines. He was a wonderful uh, trumpeteer from St. Louis. And he, he also would do the chair, the trumpet chair on The Tonight Show. He was a, a wonderful player. And, and he uh, one day he came in a place where I was playing, a little place, and he's, he uh, heard the band and he said, man, I want to use you guys. Uh, when I'm in town, I'd like to, you know, organize a combo with you fellows to, uh, uh, you know, do some workshopping, maybe do some gigs while I'm in town. And I, we said, yeah, so, and we're just young, you know, we're just kids, and yeah, this would be great. And, and so David Hines taught me so much about uh, jazz improvisation, about uh, the concept of uh, chordal structures and how to play avant-garde and discipline and practice. And, you know, he shared so much uh, knowledge with me. Taught me uh, how to read pretty much. He just took me under his wing and just helped me so much. I I owe a lot to Mr. David Hines. I really do. Well, he was a jazz trumpeter, and uh, your career spans many different musical genres. Where does your heart lie? Well, I love music. I'm not uh, um, cliquish when it comes to music. I'll, I'll listen to any kind of music. I see the I just see something good in just about every style of music, something that I can use, something that touches me, you know, that I can feel. Now, just for instance, when I was younger, I got a chance to uh, work with Albert King, the great Albert King blues man. And uh, back in the old days, you couldn't gamble. I mean, you know, they didn't have these ships like they have now, the gambling boats and the big casinos. That stuff was not there. So most of the gambling took place in people's basements. They call them speakeasies and that kind of thing. And so Albert King was one of those guys that would go to these places and gamble. And my oldest brother was also a gambler. So they met one night in in one of these speakeasies. Albert King lost a bet with my brother. And in order for him to pay my brother, my brother said, you have to take him on the road with you and see how good he does. So he took me to New York. I went on the road with Albert King to uh, the Fillmore East, uh, Billy Graham's Fillmore East, and I met all kinds of stars there. You name it, they were there because it was a great big hootenanny that they had up there. And uh, I tell you, it was quite an experience for a 15-year-old kid. I mean, I had more stuff happen to me when I was 15 years old than than all the other subsequent years after. I'm sensing that 15 was a big year for you. It was a big time for me, man. I just, I was <laughs> everywhere. I mean, it was just incredible. Well, you perform a lot of classic hits, but you also do write your own music, one of which I want to give our listeners a chance to hear called A Walk in Cozumel. Is composing as much part of your life as playing? Well, you know, composing comes hard for me. I'm, I guess I'm more of a performer than a composer. I like the challenge of trying to recreate someone's performance, but I I need to get more into uh, original composition 
it's something that I've never really gotten deeply into as I should. But uh, I plan on coming out with a an instrumental CD in a few months or so. But the song that you you mentioned, the Walking Cozumel, is it's one of my favorites. It's kind of like a uh, a Latin gypsy thing, and it's got a real good happy feeling to it. What it basically is, is, you know, I used to go to the beach every time I would go to Cosmeo from working on uh, the cruise line. I worked exclusively for Norwegian for 20 years. And I was always at the beach. I'd take a walk to the beach. And one of the most beautiful places is Cozumel. It's just a beautiful island. And the water's perfect, clear, and, and a great place to snorkel. And so I would, I, I tried to capture the feeling of stepping off the cruise ship, walking to the beach, and jumping in the water. And I think I did with that one. I think you did it too. I love it. It makes me feel like I am on a beach, which right now feels so far away in time and space. So let's give it a listen. Here is Vince Martin with an original composition called A Walk in Cozumel, which you can find on his album entitled For a Friend. my guest Vince Martin with a walk in Cozumel. Vince, before we close, what else is coming up for you? What experiences are maybe on your bucket list still? Oh, I, you know what? I'm just enjoying life. Uh, for me, um, God has been so good to me. I thank him every day for the ability to perform music, to play music, to hear music, and to be a part of the uh, the living world at this time. And even though there's a pandemic going on with all sorts of confusion going on, it's still a beautiful place to be. Uh, I, I plan on visiting a old friend who worked with me on, on the cruise ships. He's now a producer for large tribute shows. And, you know, you have to be a multifaceted individual. And I, I, and, and I do an Al Jarreau, George Benson tribute. I also do a Tom Jones tribute as you said. And uh, I have a partner named Don Turlington, who's a beautiful singer. And uh, we, her and I, we do a uh, Aaron Neville, Linda Ronstadt tribute show. So we've got a lot of irons that we can put in the fire. And we're hoping that our, our good friend, uh, Stanley Bernstein is his name, down in Florida, can, can book us. And he said he had some uh, and potentials for us. So we're looking forward to that. Well, I hope we get to hear you in Colombia at some time. To hear more of Vince Martin's music, visit his website at vince-martin.com and you can also find his album For a Friend on Amazon. Vince, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us this evening. Thank you, Diana. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. 
When it comes to seeing colour, the average person is a trichromat. We have three cones in our retina that allow us to see around one million colour variations. But there are some people who have four cones and it is speculated that they can perceive up to 100 million colour variations. These people are called tetrachromats. And whilst evidence and studies are a little sparse on this theory, I often come across artists who have an affinity for colour that far exceeds my own. Artists like my guest this evening, Kansas City-based mixed media artist Melissa Donahoe, who describes herself as having a lifelong love affair with colour. She also loves to leave behind small artworks in alleyways and coffee shop windows, tiny guerrilla art shows for later discovery by strangers. Plus, she has an incredibly fascinating day job. And so it is a thrill to have Melissa all to ourselves for the next 15 minutes. Good evening, Melissa. Good evening. Do you think you might be a tetrachromat? I actually um, have a strong feeling that I am. I'm very sensitive to color. It's a huge memory trigger for me. I can remember face papers in, in children's books I had when I was little and just the color and shade of pink that just evokes a large amount of emotion in me. So I'm always drawn a lot of times to unusual color combinations and things that may not pair together. But yeah, I definitely think I see a broader range of color. I'll even be talking to someone and say, well, that house is, you know, green. And they'll be like, no, it's gray. And I'm like, no, there's definitely green in that gray. And I see more of the depth in a color. So yeah, I think that might be the case. Where were you on that dress issue a few years ago? What was it? It was either... Was it white or blue or white or gray or something or silver? Yes, <laughs> that was so fascinating. That's what's so interesting about colors. I think everyone is seeing it differently all the time. I mean, even just a really basic color, people are seeing color in a different way and have different associations with it. It's very personal. Do you have any, any component of synesthesia where you perceive numbers or letters or music as color? I kind of see color and taste simultaneously. So colors almost have a flavor to me. So there's a heightened awareness of both like my visual interpretation of a color and almost like what that color might taste like, which I know sounds really weird, but I have this sensibility about colors in that way. I love this like one specific color of pink that's kind of this dusty mauve pink that I think would just taste like really sugary, sweet frosting. So it's just some colors that may not taste as good to me um, that are more off-putting, like a really like saturated red would be super sour and really off-putting. So it, it influences my choice of colors and my artwork as well. Well, tell us about your art. You are a surface designer and collage artist whose works highlight the give and take of intuition and intentional order. Elaborate on that for us. So my background, when I was in college, I studied textile design. So I really love pattern and pattern and texture is a big part of my collage as well as um, nature. As a collage artist, I'm just very drawn to the collecting of materials to reassemble into my artwork. So I'm always, um, I call it like kind of a in real life archiving of, of information and materials and colors into these new forms but let them speak their new voice. So I use a lot of vintage and old materials in my work that may seem discarded or dated or unwanted and kind of breathe new life into it through a new narrative or a new color palette. So that's 
what gets me going and keeps me creating. There is a a spareness to your collages, as if your mantra is less is more. Some of your works are just two or three shapes of paper or paint swatches or a slice of photographed collage together. Tell me about your design aesthetic. Yeah, so I think they always start out with more. And then I'm like, what really needs to be here to tell this story? And how can I get my point across in the clearest most concise way. And if it gets too busy or too distracting, there's probably going to be something that's not noticed that I really see as important. So I usually start out with a big mess and then I pull back and pull back until I get to those like very um, sparse elements. You are also the champion of the discarded and the forgotten, imbuing these things with new life and meaning. What have been some of your favorite transformations? Yeah, so I think finding things that literally are trash that people have thrown away or scraps of paper like on the street when I'm out taking my dog for a walk where I'm just, they catch my eye because they're a specific color or they have a patina. I also really love finding vintage books. Um, I used to live right down the street from a bookstore and they would just have this big bin of books that they were discarding and the way the pages had yellowed the smell of them, even the context, the color, how it sometimes is faded or just printed in a different time or era, really inspires me to extract those things from wherever they are and to create something new and full of life. There seems to be like, there's just a lot of joy in that. And there's just a lot of discovery of not always knowing exactly what the next thing is that I'll find and that I'll want to work with. Um, So that kind of keeps it really fresh for me. Do you ever work in three dimensions or are you purely a two-dimensional artist? I do love three-dimensional and I play around in it. I haven't done a formal collection that's three-dimensional. I love to make um, functional items. Like I do a lot of little paper bowls um, with a lot of my paper scraps. I'll do kind of a paper mache technique and make them into these tiny bowls that I often fill with other things that I've found and create these little time capsule vessels. So that's something that is definitely on my mind. I also started um, recently collecting vintage packaging, so old boxes and packaging that I would like to do um, some more relief three-dimensional collages in as well. So those are upcoming projects on my on my list of things that I really want to do. I love the idea of your guerrilla art shows. Tell me more about those. So those are the most fun. I had read somewhere, um, there's an, an artist, her name is Carrie Smith, and she has a whole book. It's called Guerrilla Art, and it's kind of like create your own opportunities. So whenever I travel, I always take a small kit with me of a glue stick and scissors and maybe some papers that I'm interested in or materials that I'm kind of focused in on from home. But then when I reach my destination, I start collecting you know, things from places I go, from the streets. I always love when there's like posters and want ads and things on telephone poles and being able to kind of retrieve some of those items. And then I create a small collection and I do a pop-up show wherever I'm at. So it's usually maybe at a coffee shop or a storefront. A lot of times I don't ask permission. People show up to work the next day and their front door is is a little (laughs) mini art gallery. Um, So I just, I love the idea of making art accessible and kind of stopping people in their tracks. You know, we walk around in a trance. We have these algorithms and things that we just repetitively see in our daily lives. 
Of course, we've had a lot of disruption in this past year, but I think there's something really interesting in catching people off guard in a really positive way and bringing a little bit of joy. And a lot of times, you know, I'm hoping because sometimes I I leave the destination, I leave the artwork behind. um, I'm hoping people pick it up. I usually do a little post on Instagram and leave something how people could contact me that they saw it. So every now and then I'll get a message on Instagram that someone um, saw my show and picked up a piece of art. And that really just, it just brings me a lot of joy. So one thing I do have to ask you about, because I'm just fascinated by your day job as the cultural and visual trends strategist for the creative team at Hallmark Cards, where you use your knowledge of color and pattern and cultural behavior to forecast what is going to trend in two years time, which is such a fascinating piece of time travel. How can you possibly know any of this? It's a lot of reading. <laughs> it's a lot of um, it's intuition, being in touch, um, being empathetic to people, being curious. So um, I did before COVID do a lot of traveling, both nationally and internationally. So seeing what's going on in other parts of the world, and maybe you know I mentioned earlier about going to New York. Sometimes things are happening a little bit ahead of time there, or. You know, if you go to like the Netherlands, there may be things happening there and kind of looking for common patterns. What I'm always looking for are patterns in different places. So my eye is always focused on that, um, which feeds into my artwork as well as my job. So a lot of times I'll travel someplace and just notice what people are wearing. What kind of shoes do they have on? Even before the pandemic, a lot of people were wearing trainers and sneakers and dressing down a lot more and really craving that comfort. And then, of course, pandemic hit and it's it's everywhere. So kind of looking for those patterns that are happening and things that are sustaining over time um, and really understanding. I think it's I just have an immense curiosity about people in the world. So always having your radar on. Obviously, it isn't only the greeting card industry, which is looking at color trends, fashion companies, lipstick and nail polish designers, paint companies. They're all in the business of encouraging us to follow the trends that, in effect, they have set or they're forecasting. Are all the forecasters across these many industries, are you all working in tandem with each other? Or might what Hallmark cards, what you see as a trend within your industry, be quite different than what the fashion companies are forecasting in terms of color and pattern? Yeah, that is a great question. So I'm kind of doing a survey across all those industries. So like you mentioned, interior design, even automotive, what colors are coming out, nail polish, fashion, and taking that information, looking for commonalities, and then putting it through the lens of social expression. So you might be seeing a little bit more of a muted palette in interior design because people are painting their walls these colors and painting their homes these colors where for social expression, those colors might need to be brightened up a little bit or something like automotive. You could get a sense of what types of finishes, like there's a lot of matte finishes on cars right now. There's not a lot of shimmer going on. I don't know if you've seen any of those, but those give a sense of what process would look like in um, home decor, again, materials, and how they play into color. A lot of natural dyes in the interior design world right now that are using those pigments from the earth. So looking at commonalities across and then thinking about what are we making at Hallmark and making the colors make sense for our products. So if you're thinking two years out, then you're looking at what colors and patterns will be trending in 2024, by which time, hopefully, we will be beyond pandemic stage. (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> are you thinking like optimistic colors? What are you thinking is going to happen in 2024? Well, the one thing that's been really interesting is how much the digital world has influenced our take on color because we're looking at backlit screens all the time. So colors are more intense and more bright. So there's some trends um, in color that really lean into those, um, I call them digitally chromatic colors that are very saturated and backlit. And then there's this desire for relief from that. So these softer, more muted pastels. So a lot of times there's a trend and then there's a counterbalance to the trends, kind of the backlash of it. So it could be a little bit dichotomous, I think, in the next coming years of what's really going to be trending in color. Um, also, when we look at our screens, um, those more muted pastels are very appealing attention-catching color combinations, so really putting things together that you wouldn't normally put together and bringing in that unexpected um, will be a big part of the color stories in the next coming years. And so what is, final question, what is trending in your own life with upcoming exhibits or, or wish list post-pandemic guerrilla shows? So I have um, a show coming up this spring at Curioso Studio. Um, they do the KCK Art Walk and they do a lot of really fun stuff that kind of has that more pop-up art. Um, it's in Kansas City, Kansas. I just got a new studio not too far from my home, so I'm having a lot of fun working in a new space. I think a different perspective is always fun when you change the environment that you're in. And just working on some of the new collections that I mentioned earlier are coming up in this next year for me. Well, to see the work of Melissa Donahoe, go to melissadonahoe.com, where you can find her various bodies of collage works. And Melissa, as we both have cute bicycles, maybe one day we can go for a ride together and leave small artworks in our wake. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> we'll definitely take you up on that. Well, thank you for taking us on a lovely art journey this evening. It was really nice talking to you, Diana. Over my 11 years at the Columbia Art League, the one genre of art that I saw far less often than painting, photography and ceramics was fibre works. Of course, fibre arts is in and of itself a diverse category of work from paper making and quilling to rug hooking and quilting. And although occasional works appeared, they were few and far between. There was a similar dearth of fibre artists at Art in the Park and the Boone County Art Show, but there was one Columbia fibre artist who submitted her work for pretty much every show and that was my next guest Dave Walker whose colour saturated fabric scapes invite the viewer to journey with him into real and imagined multi-seasonal landscapes of glades and gardens forests and waterways and cows there are nearly always cows welcome to speaking of the arts Dave hi Diana thanks for having me so on behalf of sheep goats and chickens, I would like to ask about why cows get to inhabit your blissful landscapes, but they don't. Well, I grew up on a farm and we had four dairy cows, Jean, Jane, Meg and Peg. So I, when I'm doing a country scene, I like to put either Jean, Jane or Meg or Peg in it. <laughs> that is really going to alter now how I see the cows. I'm just going to say hello to them now. I know they all have names. <laughs> the Holsteins do, the others don't. Okay. So when you meet someone who hasn't seen your art, how do you describe it? I tell them it's a fabric collage. Um, some people say I paint with fabric, but I don't really paint. I do do some fabric painting if I need to embellish my work. But most of it is all 100% fabric, found fabric collage. 
So it's almost like part collage and part quilting. Talk a little bit about the techniques you use to make your works. Well, I started uh, making quilt tops, actually. Um, that's how I started. I started making quilt tops in about 1993 as a way to quit smoking. So I made uh, about 12 quilt tops. I didn't quilt them. I just made pieces of the tops together. And after about 12 years, I decided, well, I can do something on my own. So my art just kind of developed and morphed into what, what you see today. So I use a, a bonding agent. I use a invisible filament thread to sew all my pieces down. I use um, thread work to embellish or, or put shadows or detail in my work. Do you sew by hand or use a machine for the stitching? I use machine for, for everything. I do do some hand work if I, if I want to do some detailed um, berries or some, some flowers or something, but, but it's all machine work. My wife taught me how to use the sewing machine. I didn't know how to do that. <laughs> so you've been using the sewing machine since you since the quilting days? Well, no, actually, I was making quilts by hand. I just have something to do with my hands. My wife taught me how to use a sewing machine probably in 1998, maybe. And then I started making quilt tops on the machine. So where did the idea come from for these fabric skates? Because I don't see anybody else doing them. I, I understand the connection to quilting, but they're also quite different to quilting. Talk about where the inspiration came from. Actually, um, when I was making quilts, I had piles of scraps. And I thought, well, I have a degree in art. Why don't I make something on my own instead of using someone else's patterns for quilts? So I just played around with it. And, and my first scene was a, a mountain landscape with birch trees. And ever since then, I've been hooked. Well, I know you love to travel. And from looking through your portfolio of work, there is everything from snowy landscapes to beach scenes to gorgeous kind of glades and forests. Talk to me about how you create the fabric scapes are you working from imagination mostly or from photographs you've taken on your travels mostly my imagination and i'm limited by the fabric choices i have so mostly imagination we do travel i've done some from that were inspired by our mission trip to mozambique um, we love colorado we, we love to go to the ocean but most of my scenes are missouri based familiar views that i've i've imagined or i've seen in my head I've always been curious about your fabrics. They don't look like the kind of fabrics I see at Joanne's, but almost like you've found an image that you want and printed it onto fabric. Where do you source your fabrics? I buy most of my fabric on, on the internet. Um, you can Google, if I need snow, I'll type in, a, I need a snow print fabric, and I'll have hundreds of choices. I do stop at every quilt shop that I see, but, but most of my fabrics are bought online. One of the works that you have on your Best of Missouri Hands webpage is particularly fascinating. It's called The Color of Country. And what is really interesting to me is that in the water, you have a water scene that runs across the center of the work. You have a perfect reflection of the barn and trees that are on the riverbank, except the colors are muted as if we are seeing a reflection in the water. How did you get that effect? Well, that was actually a happy accident. When I was <laughs> making that fabric scape, I laid the, the barn fabric upside down on my work table. And the, the reflection is actually the backside of that fabric. Ah, okay. So it made a perfect reverse mirrored image. Who is making all of these fabrics online? I mean, they're so 
specific. Some of the items that you have in the works, like I say, it's almost like you drew them on a computer and then and then printed them onto fabric because they're so specific to your needs. Are there companies that make these fabrics? It's very common. A lot of companies have fabrics that I use. It's hard for me to find barns and houses. I can always find cows and horses and sheep. <laughs> uh, but farmhouses are difficult to come by. But yeah, about every fabric company has something that I can use. So given that you're the only person I know who creates this style of fabricscapes, who else do you think is using these? Are there other people that do what you do? Is there a National Association of Fabricscape Artists? I don't know of anyone that does what I do. Quilters might use some of those fabrics in, in a quilt, but I've never seen anyone do the type of work that I do and, and then mat it and frame it under glass so it looks like a, a piece of fine art. Tell me about one of the works maybe that has special meaning for you on, on in your portfolio. One of my favorites is the Glade of Pickle Springs. Um, and it's just an image. I love Pickle Springs. It's a, it's a hiking trail close to Farmington, Missouri. Uh, it's just a favorite place that my wife and I go to. And it's just, uh, it brings me happiness. I see flowers and I've got some pine trees, uh, kind of a stormy summer sky. It just makes me happy to look at it. One of the ones that I, I really love is just simply called Joy. And it's, a, I think it's a sunset image of a girl on a swing yeah. with water in the background. Tell me about that one. It's interesting. The, the sunset fabric um, was donated to me. A, a lady had called me and said, I understand you do fabric, fabric work, and I have some fabric you might be interested in. So she gave me four panels of sunsets, and she said she bought those in probably in the 60s, and she didn't know why she bought them, but she gave them to me. And so um, the silhouette of the girl in the swing, I thought, was just a perfect compliment for the, that sunset. Yeah, it's a very happy painting fabric scape. I'm curious about your background in, you have a degree in arts education. And because I know you through the Art League, I know that you, at least you spent the latter part of your career working with in residential care homes for the elderly. How much of a role has your art degree and your creativity had in your career and your career choices? I think I'm a creative person and it just helped me think outside the box when it comes to healthcare and long-term care. It was a hobby, just always a hobby while I was working in healthcare. I taught for six years um, and then realized I couldn't make a living teaching art with a growing family and kids. So now that you've retired, have you ramped up your art making activity? Is your portfolio expanding exponentially now you have more time? It has. I spend every day in my studio creating something. So I have a large inventory. And I know at least a couple of years you've done art in the park. Are you, now that you have the time, are you doing more of the festival circuit? All my, my festivals have been canceled because of COVID, but I actually do better in a gallery. Art in the park is too hot for my work because I use a double iron on bond. And if it gets too hot, the fabric seems to want to slide or, or move on me. So I don't do art in the park anymore just because it's the wrong time of the year. So I'll do a show in April, May, September, October, but, but not in the summer. It's too hot for my work. How far afield do you go for shows? I only do St. Louis, Springfield. It's a lot of travel and a lot of, <laughs> it's a lot of hard work doing shows, I know. It is. I do better in galleries. It's a lot of work to haul everything around and set up. And then if, the, if we have bad weather, 
which we, we have had when I've done the, the show in Springfield. Some of my work has gotten water damaged and I've had to redo it and reframe it. So this is going to sound a little sexist, so apologies. But when most people think about stitching or quilting or fabric, I suspect that they mostly imagine female artists. And I'm curious if that is a huge misperception <laughs> and whether you've come across many men working in fabriscapes or, or quilting. I have not. I've come across a couple men that do quilting or fabricscapes. It's interesting when my wife and I go to a fabric store, people ignore me. They don't talk to me. They'll talk to my wife, and my wife keeps saying, ask him, not me. And they look confused, like, lady, what are you talking about? There's actually one fabric store that I refuse to go into because every time I go, they ignore me. They don't talk to me. They don't help me. Is that in Colombia? Yes, it is. So let's be a bit about pricing. I know it's something that artists always struggle with. You always frame your work. They're beautiful frames. You can tell that you spent a lot of money on it. And your pricing for the bigger works usually runs between, what, 1500 to 2000 for an original. How do you decide on a price for your works? I think basically uh, maybe how rare the fabric is, um, how much I had to pay for the framing and matting, mm. how long it took me to do it. It was interesting with the fabric, it's like wallpaper. Once they print it, they never reprint it. So when I run out of fabric, I can never replace it. Huh. So if I made a fabricscape with a farmhouse, if I have no more farmhouses, I can never do another fabricscape with a farmhouse, that farmhouse. How huge is your store of fabric? Uh, I have a uh, 24 feet a bookcase that's six feet high full of fabric. And I'm always buying more. <laughs> do you buy it in large rolls or does it come in small scraps when you're buying something very specific? You can buy it in a fat square or, or by the quarter of a yard, half yard, yard. I usually buy a yard so that I have it if I need it again. And is it expensive or does it depend on the cotton that it's printed on or does the expense, is it based on the printing? Fabric is expensive. But I'm lucky if I can buy a yard of fabric for, for $12. Some of them were $12, $14, for, for a yard of fabric. And I may have to buy a yard of fabric just to get one tree I want, or one house, or one barn, or one cow. So, so I don't do golf, so my wife lets me buy fabric. <laughs> We've all got to have something. Yeah. Do you have any shows coming up at galleries around Missouri where people can see your work? I'm going to be at the Ore Gallery in May. And I currently have work at the um, Art Off the Trail in Roachport every month. And I, I rotate some work in and out of that, that gallery. Did you say Orr Street? Orr Street Gallery in May, I believe. Perfect. Well, to see the work of Fabricscape artist Dave Walker, you can visit bestofmissourihands.org forward slash Walker, D-A-V-I. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for taking time to chat about your work today. Thank you so much for having me. Landscape painter Lee Copen has lived on four continents. She was born in South Africa, moved to Chile with her family when she was 12, and then relocated to Colorado when she was 16. And it was in Colorado where her long-standing passion for painting and drawing the world around her got a boost from a dedicated and talented art teacher who encouraged Lee to pursue her art at the University of Northern Colorado, after which she became an architect illustrator before becoming a high school art teacher. 
As an adult, she lived amidst the dales of Yorkshire in my home country and has travelled to many places around the world, all the while observing and painting the multifarious landscapes she finds herself in. Today, she lives in Mountain View, Missouri, surrounded by farms, rivers and rolling Ozark countryside. She's a member of the American Impressionist Society and the Missouri Valley Impressionist Society, has won a ton of local and regional awards for her work. And this evening, she is my guest. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Lee Copen. Hey, thank you. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you for this opportunity. Well, I am so delighted that we get the chance to chat as we have previously only met via email when I was researching Missouri landscape paintings for Central Bank of Boone County's art collection. And although, unfortunately, I did not get to buy one of your works, it did give me a chance to be on your email list. And I love getting an email from you each time you finish your work as they are like gorgeously colorful email jewels. And because those emails pop up quite regularly, I'm wondering if you are either an incredibly fast painter or if you paint in every spare moment of the day. What is your painting habit, Lee? Well, I really am pretty fast. And so I'm lucky in that respect. I I feel like there are so many paintings I want to create. I never run out of things that I want to create. And so I have tons of photographs. And, you know, even though I love to be outside painting in person, I still take a lot of photographs. And so I have those in the studio. And honestly, whenever I get a spare minute, I sit down and paint a little bit. But if I have a few days, I can usually complete a painting. And so I try to paint a little bit every day, and I usually manage to. And then in addition to that, if I can spend a weekend, I can usually finish a painting. Is it more daunting staring at a blank canvas or staring at a canvas that's almost finished and you think, shall I do a bit more? Is it finished? Shall I do a bit more? (laughs) Well, you never know when they're finished. I have never had a problem of staring at a blank canvas. For me, that is just the most exciting time. Probably the hardest thing for me is staring at a beautiful scene and not having the time to paint it. You know, I'll be driving somewhere and it's so beautiful. I just wish I could stop and paint, but I can't. So that's probably the hardest thing for me. When I get time to paint, that that moment of putting that canvas up, that is just fun. I've never had a problem with that. So for me, starting is the easy part. Finishing it, you work through some of the problems that you have along the way. And that's probably the hardest part. And then somehow you get to that point where hmm, it just looks done and you don't want to do anymore. And then I move on. So beginnings and ends are probably my favorite. Somewhere in the middle is when I struggle a little bit. It's rare that I come across someone who has lived on more continents than I have, but you have me beat at four, so I can only muster three. Were you an adventurous child who loved change, or was painting and drawing your way of escaping the challenges of having globe-trotting parents? Well, I did fine with it. I loved it. I loved the adventure. I was 12 years old when we left South Africa, and we moved to Chile. Me and my brother and my sisters stayed behind. And I personally cherished it. I cherished that time to just, um, I don't know, see things that were so unusual. And it was wonderful for me. And living in Chile was there for three years. And then we moved to the United States, to Colorado. And I was fine there, too. And then my oldest sister had ended up moving to 
England. And so I went and lived with her after I graduated from college just for eight months, but it was still a wonderful time. So I loved it. I had a a very different childhood than an adult life because as an adult, I've actually been fairly sedentary. You write that even as a young child, you were a painter. Tell me about the landscapes that really inspired you as a child and what aspects of those landscapes really drew out the painter in you? Well, I think I was just a painter by nature. I just, when I look at things, I just want to paint them because where we lived in South Africa was actually pretty boring. It's kind of the Kansas of, of, <laughs> of Africa. I mean, it was, it was flat plains. We had one tree on our property <laughs> and the rest of it was just flat and a big old sky, but I still loved it. I still painted it. And so I think I'm just drawn to anything that catches my attention. And sometimes it isn't what would catch other people's attention. You know, I've lived in some very beautiful places, but even places that other people would consider boring, I still love. I love the sky and the trees, water. And so I've just drawn to all of it. I really am. Chile, there I was introduced more to to water. You know, we lived on the ocean. And um, so I love to try to paint waves and the beach. And that was the only time I really had that time. And now I find myself drawn back to water again and the creeks and the streams and waterfalls. I'm really enjoying doing a lot of that lately. It wasn't until you arrived in Colorado to go to high school that an art teacher saw the potential in you and encouraged you to pursue your art academically. Tell me about that teacher and how their tutelage ultimately made you a high school art teacher too. Yeah, that was true. I, you know, as a child, I I drew on my own and I think that's unusual. And I created paintings. So when I first um, came to the United States was the first time I actually had an art class. And I was so excited. It just, you know, was thrilling to me to think I actually get to do this in school. And I brought my paintings. And I think that was probably an unusual thing. You know, this is halfway through ninth grade. And here this kid shows up with a bunch of paintings that they want to show you. And I realize now as a teacher that that's unusual. I didn't know that I was unusual as a child, (laughs) but I realize it now. And so I had all these paintings and I was so excited to show her. And she was kind of like, okay. And honestly, that was a good thing because I was a little bit too full of myself. And she, <laughs> I think she probably realized I had a lot of passion and desire, but she wasn't that impressed with my artwork. So it actually stepped me back a bit. And I realized I still had a lot to learn. And realizing that was good for me because I think that's what really helped me grow. And the greatest thing about her, her name was Pat Abbott, and she has deceased, but She was such a wonderful teacher. She was so wonderful in the sense that she just encouraged us to really pursue art. It was something I hadn't even thought was possible. And she was so passionate about it. And she took us to New York and she took us to Santa Fe and took us to museums and took us to art supply stores and just showed us all the stuff that we could buy. (laughs) And, you know, so she was just so passionate and she enjoyed it so much and enjoyed being around art. And I think that's what I loved. And 
and certainly that's what I've brought into the classroom with me from her is showing the kids your passion, that you love it. And I'm so happy to have art in my life. I can't imagine my life without having art in it. And so sharing that with others and sharing it with those that also care about art is, is what is so wonderful about being able to teach. As I was rummaging around on your website, I happened upon one of your blog posts, which was so beautifully honest, because like many artists, on the one hand, you say, I am happiest when I get the chance to paint. But then you also wrote, I do love painting, but that is a bold statement. And on many levels, it is a lie. <laughs> Talk to me about that lie. <laughs> Well, and that's the part that, you know, you assume it's all fun and it's all wonderful because we all say I'd love to paint. And I mean that. But at the same time, it's almost a painful passion. So there's times that I want to paint so much and I can't that that actually it is almost physically painful to me to not have that time to do it. And then there's the other side of it that in the middle of painting, it's hard. It's hard to solve the problem you're trying to solve. It's hard to make it look right. Um, there's a lot of other aspects that can be quite painful. You know, you really have to put yourself out there and you have to face rejection from people, certainly those that know. It seems like everybody that maybe doesn't know a lot about art thinks you're the greatest artist ever, but you kind of know better. <laughs> and then my parents think I'm the greatest artist ever, but I know better. <laughs> and then, you know, facing some real criticism and trying to get into shows and trying to sell your artwork, that can be quite painful at times. And, and it ends up being a lot of hard work. And so there are times that, yes, I love painting and I can't imagine not painting. But at the same time, it is something that can turn into work. You have to put the time into it. You have to put the effort into it. You quote a contemporary American artist, I think, in the same blog or another one called Dan McCaw. And he talks about how his quote is about if you're going to paint, don't forget to put yourself the poetry of who you are and how you view the world in your work. Tell us where we find you in your work. For me, I've, I've learned to trust my instincts. I've learned to trust when I see something as just being beautiful, to trust that and to paint it. For a long time, I didn't quite trust that. I was always looking for what's, you know, that perfect scene. And I thought that I had to paint something that was unusual and different. And I would try to to come up with all these ideas. And then it actually stopped me from being able to paint. And I finally got into a place where I realized when I see something that's beautiful, when it catches my attention and literally makes my heart sing and takes my breath away, that that's what I need to paint. So that's me. That is the part that I noticed that little piece of light on the water or the certain way that a tree fell against the sky and that caught my attention. And so to me, that's my poetry. And it's just trusting that that's enough. And also trusting that sometimes those scenes that are just so unnatural looking, I can paint those because <laughs> that's what's catching my attention. For a long time, I would, I would avoid things that seemed like they were too strange or different. You know, we'll get skies here that are 
so dark blue, sometimes you think, well, I can't paint it that way. It'll look odd. But I've learned to trust that I can. You work in both watercolor and oil, and you say that the medium you choose depends on how the scene makes you feel. What does a watercolor scene feel like that is different from an oil scene? And I don't know if I have a perfect answer for that. (laughs) All I know is that I can't pick between one and the other. All I know is that I love to paint in both oils and in watercolor. And there's just days that I look at something and go, yep, that's watercolor. I Definitely there's, I don't know. I don't know if there's a way to pick. There are some things that I just, when I look at the photograph or when I look at the scenery, it just looks like it's going to make a good watercolor. And there's other days that I look at it and I think it's just going to make a good oil. I would say that my watercolors, I have more control. So anytime that I'm painting something with a lot of detail, like architecture or bridge or something where I want that fine detail, then I use my watercolors because I you just get those nice little brushes and you can make those details. And, you know, with an oil, I just, I have a harder time with some of those finer details. With the oil, I like to be looser and bigger and more colorful. And so it really just depends. But all I know is I haven't been able to choose between one or the other. And I'm hoping that I never have to. (laughs) Well, you can see all of Lee Copen's watercolor and oil landscapes on her website at leecopen.com. That's L-E-E-C-O-P-E-N. And if you are down in Branson, you can see eight of her oil paintings at the Branson Convention Center in the Regional Arts Council exhibit through March the 31st. And Lee is also teaching a class at the Missouri Artists on main gallery in St. Charles on March the 18th and 19th. And that's also, you can find information on her website. Lee Copen, thank you so much for sharing your artistic journey with us this evening. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to do this. And thank you for talking to me and just letting me talk about the thing that I love. that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest this evening, musician Vince Martin, mixed media artist Melissa Donohoe, fabricscape artist Dave Walker, and landscape painter Lee Copen. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally... Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.